Oh, wow. This series in the book of Acts, every time we turn the page, God says something brand new. Last Sunday, if you weren't with us, Pastor Brad Jones preached a word, and it was really a moment that was different at each gathering that we have where we saw the Spirit of God illuminating individual situations and ministering to people right where they were at. That was in Acts chapter 14, but I want to rewind the clock to two weeks ago because two Sundays ago, I preached a sermon called King Jesus Gospel, where essentially we talked about the fact that in the book of Acts, you have all these sermons that are summaries of the gospel. They just don't look anything like the simple gospel presentation so many of us grew up assuming. Like the speakers don't get up in the book of Acts and go, hey, here's a few things about what Jesus did for you on the cross. If you believe in him, if you trust in him, if you repeat a prayer, you'll go to heaven one day and God will forgive you for your sins. Like that's not the version of Jesus that is given to the early church. It's a full scale picture of the kingdom of Jesus where yes, definitely your forgiveness is involved and your invitation to make a decision to follow Jesus and enter into discipleship is absolutely a part of the journey. But so much more than the gospel is about you being forgiven or even about you at all. It's about a kingdom where there's a king on a throne and his name is Jesus. So to embrace the King Jesus gospel is to embrace Jesus as king over Israel. In other words, you got to know something about the story that he comes from. It's to embrace him as king over everything, that all things have been made by him and for him, for his supremacy. The purpose of every created thing is to illuminate and exalt Jesus but he's not just like king on a grand scale. You become a Christian when you actively participate in that kingdom by making him king of your heart and life. The reason why I want to remind you of that moment from two weeks ago is because in a lot of ways, this sermon functions as part two of that conversation. And if you don't have that, this one's not going to carry the same weight. So some of y'all need to go back and some of y'all just need to be reminded of that because I don't know if there's... It's not that any one sermon's better than another. I don't know if there's a more important sermon in our church's history than two weeks ago for us to talk about where we're going so that deep discipleship is a norm here. The title of today's sermon, which like I said, can function as part two of King Jesus Gospel, is called Purified Hearts Equals New Life. Purified Hearts Equals New Life. That'll make sense as I flesh out this sermon, but I want to begin by saying the kingdom of Jesus is not a political or military kingdom as we think of the word kingdom. So Jesus is a king, and a kingdom is a space where a certain ruler has reign and authority. So what does it mean for the kingdom of God to expand if it is not a physical place, it is a spiritual being called the church? Well, for the kingdom of God to expand, it's not a physical place where people ascribe themselves to a certain ruler. It's a spiritual kingdom where Jesus rules and reigns in the hearts and minds of people who have put their trust in him. It's really about your inner life. And what we're going to see happen in the book of Acts today, this is crazy and an absolutely massive moment in the history of the church. But there's actually going to be a church council called the Council of Jerusalem where the entire church leadership gets together for a theological debate. 
Anybody excited about that? Any Presbyterians excited about that? You're like, finally, a theological debate. I've been waiting for this for a decade at this church. They get together for a debate because there's issues that must be wrestled with, especially in the vulnerable early days of the church. And the main issue they are wrestling with is because Christianity at this point is just a sect of Judaism, what do we do with the law of Moses as so many of these non-Jews are starting to believe in and trust in Jesus? And they have to deal with the question, do believers need to participate in the rights and the rules and restrictions of Jews to be set apart externally as the people of God? There was this sign of the covenant of God for Israel called circumcision. And the question was, how much, if any, of the Old Testament law do these new believers need to follow? And as they wrestle through this, what ultimately comes out is that Jesus did not come to add something on top of the external regulations of the law in order to save humanity. Jesus came with a new covenant entirely that's rooted in transforming your inner life, not just doing external maintenance. And so while we're not arguing over how much of the Jewish law we need to keep in 2023, the essential element of what happened at the Jerusalem Council is so present in our lives today, I would argue around every turn as a Christian, you will be tempted to make your pursuit of God more about external modifications than about inner transformation, and Jesus goes straight for the heart. He is coming for hearts today. He's coming for minds today. He's not interested in a few adjustments to your behaviors lately or just making your church attendance higher or just getting that quiet time quota up. Like Jesus wants to transform you from the inside out. But I think a lot of you have heard preachers say that before and a lot of you assume, yes, inside out living. I know what that means. But what's actually going to happen at the Jerusalem Council, this is so beautiful, is James is going to give us a practical road map for how you and I participate in the inner transformation Jesus wants to bring to our lives. So that's what we're going to read about today. Are y'all excited to study the word of God? Did you bring your Bible this early in the morning? If you have your Bible, hold it up. You didn't forget your Bible this early. Hold it up. Hold it up. Whole Huff family didn't bring their Bible. Good job, guys. Turn with me to Acts chapter 15. I, said, I told you I would say something. Acts chapter 15. We're going to begin in verse 1 with the council at Jerusalem. Here's good news, guys. We've been in Acts for like seven months now, and we just hit the halfway point. We're starting Acts 15 today. There are 28 chapters in Acts. We're there. It's halftime, guys. Acts chapter 15. We are going to begin in verse 1, and like I told you, we got a lot of scripture to study, and we got to do it in a little bit of a hurry. So here we go. Acts chapter 15, verse 1. If you're there, say I'm there. It says, Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. need to clarify a couple of things just so you see this geographically. Antioch is this new center of the church that's 250 miles north of Jerusalem. So when it says that these people came down from Jerusalem, they really went up. It just bothers me directionally, but you, you know what they mean. There are these people who went up to Antioch from Jerusalem and they're going, hey, Jesus is great. Believe in Jesus. But if you're a Gentile believer in Jesus, you must participate in circumcision to be saved. Verse two. This brought Paul and Barnabas, who are there in Antioch, we talked about all of their adventures all over the Greco-Roman world last week, into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. 
The church sent them on their way. And as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Let's make sure we set this scene well. So when the church in Antioch gets this interruption from Jerusalem, hey, you guys need to be participating in circumcision. There's such a sharp debate that the church in Antioch goes, we can't afford to be unsure of our answer on this. Paul and Barnabas, your leaders, you're going to make the 250-mile journey to Jerusalem and get answers. And while they're on their way down there, with every city they visit, they report all the great things God is doing. But make no mistake about it, they are on their way to Jerusalem to deal with an issue. And that issue gets brought up in verse 5. It says, Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Now, this is not the sermon at all, but I think this will just help some of y'all who are in jobs that are loaded with hard conversations. Sometimes when the church in Acts is talked about, it's over-romanticized, and we picture this group of people that's always getting along, that's always serving people, that's always outgiving one another, that's always enjoying a meal together, that nothing bad. Listen, this is the church getting together and a heated debate lasting for days. And I don't know why, for me, this just comforted me to know that the early church wasn't as harmonious as we assume that it is. Some of the theological doctrines that we hold the most dear were fought for through the strenuous activity called hard conversations. Now, this isn't true about my job because it's easy being a pastor and I never have to have hard conversations, but some of y'all have jobs or families where it feels like there is a hard conversation every other day, and I just want you to find comfort in the scripture. There is gold that can be found when a healthy Christian is willing to engage with hard conversations, even sometimes with impossible, unruly people. And that's what happens right here. They're, they're debating over this. And then Peter, the rock, stands up. And so everybody's going to listen. He says, brothers, you know that... Hold on, I just noticed this. Don't you think it's interesting that Peter let the discussion happen before he stood up and took over? There's maturity to be found in listening before you speak. Once again, not the sermon. But, brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, pay attention to that, showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. Peter's speech hinges on a moment that he had with Cornelius. I preached a sermon on this called The Blood Is Not Done, where Peter goes, no, you know, they were saved the same way we are. By grace, we have been purified before God. It's the same faith and the same grace through and through. They do not need to participate in, in this right specifically. Now watch this in verse 12. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. 
When they finished, James spoke up. Okay, picture the scene. Everybody's arguing, arguing their case about they should be circumcised. No, they shouldn't. Well, here's what we know from our teacher and from our rabbis and from our just debate, debate, debate. Peter stands up. Y'all, I was there with Cornelius. You know the story. The Holy Spirit went out to them the same way the Holy Spirit went to us. They do not need to participate in this. And then Paul and Barnabas stand up and they go, God has been confirming what he did through Peter in our ministry. Listen to what's happening among the Gentiles. Listen to the miracles we participated. Listen to the persecution we've been willing to endure for the truth of this message. And then James stands up. This is the half-brother of Jesus. And if you don't know anything about James, let me just tell you a little bit about his letter in the New Testament. Watch out. James is dangerous. If anyone has the authority and the courage to stand up to Peter and Paul and Barnabas, it's James. So at this point, whatever direction he's going to take the conversation is probably how things are going to conclude. Watch what James has to say. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written, After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind, this is where I love ESV, if you have ESV it says that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. What does James say? He says, I agree with Peter. This is what the prophet Amos prophesied, that God was going to rebuild the ruins of Israel, but in rebuilding the remnant, he was going to include Gentiles who may seek the Lord. The scriptures confirm this, and he adds on, but we need to give them some sort of a roadmap. See, I love what James does. James gives the practical outworking of what Peter and Paul and Barnabas are arguing for. He goes, we don't need to rehash the entire law. The, the, the law is read on every Sabbath. In other words, the rules and restrictions of the council at Jerusalem are not intended to be all-encompassing. Like Ten Commandments, still helpful to follow the Ten Commandments. They're not trying to take three things and replace every other law and rule and restriction that has been written. What James is trying to do is flesh out what Peter said when he said, this is how God purifies hearts by grace through faith. And James wants the Gentiles to know you are, par you are invited to participate in that grace and your faith transforming you, and this is how you do it. I want to bring you back to that moment where Peter said that because you can't miss this. Go back to verse 9. We're going to live here. He said, he, God, did not discriminate between us Jews and them Gentiles, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. Peter says, we are purified by faith. Why does he say that? Because that's how God has been saving and justifying his people from the beginning of Israel. 
Who is the first person chosen by God to father the nation of Israel? Abraham. Do you know what the scripture says about Abraham in the book of Genesis? It says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. God has implemented into Israel from the beginning the process of crediting righteousness for faith. And what they're discovering in the early church is the blood of Jesus, when trusted in by faith, can be credited on the account of sinful humanity as righteousness, the same way God has been doing this from the beginning of time. In other words, the new covenant of God is the fulfillment of the entire story God has been telling, not a new thing God has just suddenly decided to do. Now, everybody look up here because I don't want you to miss what I'm about to say. But what's also embedded into what Peter said is something you may not notice if you read it quickly because we're so quick to grab the grace word and the faith word that we miss the middle part where he goes, why would we put on the Gentiles a burden and a yoke that we couldn't even carry? Why would we have them participate in a law system that only ever served to separate us from a God we were trying to serve? Now that's an interesting observation. Peter is going, the law never worked in the first place, guys. Why throw it on them when we couldn't make it work? And I just want to ask the question today. This is, this is a deep, deep question. Why didn't the law work for the people of Israel in the Old Testament? Just think about it. If God's going to go to all that effort for Moses to give him the Ten Commandments twice, by the way, and all the other, because, you know, you had a little anger issue, broke them, and then God's like, okay, we got to write this again. Let's restart. Okay, why would God go through all that trouble just to go, see, I knew you guys were going to screw it up and fail. Like, God is not this sadistic machine-making person who's just like, I just want to see you guys fail so ultimately I can come through and save you. No, the law failed to work for Israel, not because it was impossible for Israel to follow, but because there was a deeper problem that they didn't realize they had. See, Israel, this is, this is controversial, but I want you to go with me on this. Israel had every capability of keeping the law that God gave them in the Old Testament. You'll hear a lot of people say, they couldn't do it because sin and it doesn't enable you to do it. Like, they couldn't do it, so Jesus had to do it for them. No, they could do it. Like God says, I've set life and death before you, blessings and curses. I've given you everything you need to obey. Obey me and it will go well with you in the land. Disobey me and you'll be headed straight back to the slavery I already saved you from. That's the deal. Israel had the capability to obey. The problem wasn't that they didn't have the ability to obey. The problem was actually that at the core of who they were, they didn't want to. Their problem wasn't the functionality of obedience. It was their heart. Even when they had the motivation to obey, it wouldn't even sustain. So the problem wasn't, no, they didn't have the ability because sin had them mired. No, they had every ability, but their heart wouldn't engage to love God and desire God long enough to see obedience through. That's why the cry of the Old Testament is not, God, would you please help us do these things? The cry of the Old Testament is, God, we got a problem and it's in our hearts, so would you please purify our hearts? hearts. You ever read David in the Psalms? What Abby read to start this gathering, who may ascend to the mountain of the Lord, to his holy place? The one with clean hands and a pure heart. That's who can be where God is. And if that's the qualification to get where God is, nobody's going. That's why in Psalm 51, when David committed adultery with Bathsheba, what did he pray? 
God, create in me a clean heart and renew a steadfast spirit to sustain me. The problem isn't that we don't have the ability to obey God. The problem was always that at the core of who we are, we really don't want to. We are that broken by sin. And David cries out, God, if if I'm gonna make it, I need you to do some spiritual surgery on me. And the surgery that God wants to do on humanity is not an external surgery to set them apart physically. No, it's an, it's an internal heart change and a removal of one heart and a placement of a spiritual heart. And that's why when God promised Israel in the Old Testament what he was going to do when his son arrived, the language he used was not more rules and more restrictions. The language he used was a new heart that wants to obey and please God. Watch Jeremiah 31. You don't got to turn there, but this is a prophecy about the new covenant. Oh, right before this was written, uh, Jeremiah says, God's going to make a new covenant with his people, and it's not going to be like the one he gave on Sinai to Moses. It's going to be different. And here's what's going to be different about it. Look, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. This is, oh, this is one of the most important passages in the entire Old Testament. God prophesies through Jeremiah. There's going to come a time where the law is not going to be written on stone tablets anymore up on a mountain. It's going to be written on hearts and minds. No longer will they say to their neighbor, know the Lord. Look at the person next to you right now and say, know the Lord. Just tell them, know the Lord, know the Lord, know the Lord. Okay, y'all, that's the spirituality of the Old Testament. Hey, know your stuff, follow the way. Do things the way God taught us. Know the Lord. Know the Lord. God goes, that's not going to be said anymore because they're just going to know me from within. I'm going to do a new work from within. And the work I'm going to do within is going to incline them to desire me in a way that they couldn't before. Watch how God says it through Ezekiel. Ezekiel's crazy, guys. But Ezekiel 36 and 37, powerful. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will, watch this, remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. God says, you have a heart of stone that rejects me that is angry, that is impure, that is guilty. And I'm no longer going to ask you to conjure up the external will to do these things. I'm gonna remove that heart entirely and put something new in its place. And the something new is a someone new, the Holy Spirit of God. And what will the Holy Spirit do? Move you to obey my commands. The purity that Jesus offers on the cross is not merely a purity that cleanses you from the unrighteousness of your sins. It is also, in addition to that, an enablement to desire and follow the will of God from within. 
God does not stop at forgiveness. He certainly offers it, but he moves over to empowerment. It means the good news of the King Jesus gospel is not just congratulations sinners, you've been forgiven. That's awesome and that's a good announcement. But in addition to that, you've been given the spirit of God from within so now your loves can be transformed. So now your worship can exist on top of your forgiveness. Now Jesus can take the throne and you can desire what God wants. You can do what God wants. You can walk in a way that is holy and pleasing to him because now you don't have this heart of stone that's pulling you into all of the ways of this world. You have a heart of flesh that's being transformed by the spirit of God. Purified hearts equals new life. When you think of God purifying your heart, do you think of more than just my sins have been canceled out? Do you think I've been given a whole new disposition toward him and toward them and an invitation to God to love him? The good news of the gospel is that God in Christ has made it possible for you to really love him. So we sang that new song today, and it's really just like a tag of a song saying, purify my hands, purify my heart. God, I'm so in love, but I want to love you more. But then we sang this little part that was awkward. King of Kings wasn't awkward. Like, y'all went for it during that one. And then rest on us. Y'all were like, let's go. And it was awesome. But there was this awkward part, and I was standing over there watching the whole room, and it was awkward for a lot of you. It was when the words went on the screen, I love you, Jesus especially for the older men in the room. It's such an intimate thing to say. Like, we're just going to sing, I love you, I love you, I love you, Jesus. Like, I feel like a, like a child or like a needy middle schooler. Like, I, I, I don't, I, it feels weird just singing those words. But I was like, I think a lot of us have compromised the basic transformation that the gospel offers, which is God wants to do an inside-out work on your heart and make it possible for you to love him more than you love sin. And some of y'all need that softness and that gentleness to go, hey, here's how you know if God's given you a new spirit within you. It's not, do you always choose God? Do you have a will that is perfect? No, 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 no. It's a Do you have an inner disposition to love Jesus no matter what? Because if you do, God has chosen you and his spirit lives on the inside of you. It means every effort you make to walk away from him and persist in sin will only end in emptiness and isolation. And that emptiness and isolation is not intended to be a punishment for you. It's intended to be a grace for you because godly sorrow produces repentance. It means... If God has loved you and saved you, he has re-inclined your heart to be miserable and restless until you find your rest in him. And I love, I, I sat across the table from somebody the other day at lunch. They don't come to our church. He's been in Auburn for like a decade, just kind of watching what God's doing through ACC. And he was like, all right, I got to know. 
what, what in the world is going on at this church and what is it that sustains something like this? Because there's a lot of people who probably would have thought this thing would have flamed out by now. Like, what's going on? And I was like, I don't, I don't have all the answers. I have a lot of theories. But here's, if you're asking that about me personally, here's what I can tell you. I, I really just love Jesus so much. And I do not lead perfectly and I have like a lot going on in me that I wish were worked out faster but he's planted in me this desire for him that just won't die. And so I'm just not going to go anywhere but to his feet. And even when I choose to go somewhere else, I'll end up back at his feet even faster because it's miserable any other way. That, that's the type of transformation God wants to get through your life. And watch this. That's what it means to be a Christian. we got to stop qualifying Christianity by, did you pray the prayer? Did you have the moment at youth camp? Did you make the decision? Did you, do you have your card? Do you have a Bible? Do you have the, 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 the sign? Guys, they were looking at the sign, circumcision, and God was like, it's not it. It's here. The question of whether or not you're believers, do you love him? Do you treasure him? Does your heart beat for more of him? And when you fail to live up to that standard, are you quick to run back to him and go, I'm sorry, I want to be different, and him tell you, just your desire to want to be different is planted in you by the fact that I gave you a new heart in the first place. Purified hearts equals new life. And now we get to participate in this new life. Now, here's what I love. James steps in and doesn't stop there. He actually wants us as believers to know, okay, I've been given a new heart and that's great, but like, what do I do? Is, is my will even a part of this equation at all? Like, or is it just God does it all and I just kind of watch and react to stuff? No, James, with those three things that sounded really random, actually gave us a roadmap to participate in the purification of our hearts. Y'all still got time? Do you got like seven minutes left? Yeah, I'm like, I'm, it's going to be funny if I get this in in seven minutes. Here we go, guys. Um, stay with me. They write a letter to the church in uh, Antioch, and it says this. This is so short and so funny. Verse, Acts 15, verse 28. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. See, some of y'all thought you were good until the last one. You will do well. You're like, yes, yes. Oh, man. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. I love that letter. This is the first church council, guys. This is well before creeds. This is just like, well, tell them, let's avoid some of this stuff. And then make sure you say farewell at the end. And then Paul and Barnabas take this letter to Antioch and they freak out. They're so excited. What's up with the list, okay? What's up with abstaining from food, sacrifice to idols, blood, and the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. Well, essentially what James is giving us is a three-step inner inventory to look at whether or not we are participating in transformation. And I'll give you all three of my points ahead of time because I know I'm going to have to do this fast. What he basically said is, your new inner disposition is Jesus over idols, community over self, and purity over immorality. This is what has happened to your heart if you are in Christ Jesus. And inwardly, you participate in transformation by choosing Jesus over idols, community over self, and purity over immorality. Let's take them one at a time. Okay, let's start with Jesus over idols. What does abstaining from food, sacrifice to idols, have to do with my heart being purified? Everything, everything. 
This verse does not apply to us in 2023 literally as, guys, please avoid food that might end up at a totem pole. Like that is not, that is not the practical working out of this. The practical working out of this is where has your heart given affection and attention that was due to God to somewhere or something or someone else? It's about idol inventory. Same thing in the Old Testament that they had to do every time their worship would start to sway to all of these other little G gods. And idolatry is just as big, if not more of an issue in 2023 than it ever was 2,000 years ago where there were physical idols. You need to know this. If you're a Christian in the room, even if you're not a Christian, if you're a human being, your heart is an idol factory. Your heart will create false gods and create worship for things that are less than God out of anything and everything. And so, so the solution on the inside is not just, well, get rid of all your idols. We're, well, what if your idol is like your kid's accomplishments? You're not going to tell your kid, hey, start getting Fs and start like doing bad. No, no, no. Idols are not necessarily things that all need to be deleted from our lives. They're things that must be engulfed by the praise and worship of Jesus in our lives. Okay, so in the Old Testament, they would go around and they would, they would get rid of the priests and they would tear down all these idols and there would be like this violent movement to, hey, let's, let's return to Yahweh, the one true God. How does a New Testament believer choose Jesus over idols on the inside? Simple. All satisfying worship of Jesus. You don't tear down an idol by trying to delete everything from your life that competes with Jesus. You tear down an idol by delighting yourself in Jesus so much and letting that fire burn so much that it engulfs everything that used to compete. Worship is the inner pathway to idols falling in your lives. And so the question is not, how do I get rid of everything that competes with Jesus and give him all my focus and attention? No, this is a relationship. You've been given a new heart. Are you choosing to engage and activate that new heart? Because I'll tell you this, what that heart beats to do is give worship and praise and honor to him. So the way you know whether or not on the inside is Jesus or idols is this question. Are you enjoying loving Jesus today? Are you delighting in the law of the Lord? Is he the all-satisfying treasure of your heart? And the best way to tear down an idol is always start enjoying Jesus more. And as that fire burns brighter, this one becomes dimmer. And this weight on you that felt like a sumo wrestler is all of a sudden feeling like something, oh man, there's so much more weight to delighting in and enjoying God. That, that could become a whole nother sermon in and of itself, but I have to be fast with these points. Jesus over idols. One more thing I wanna say about that one. Nothing will impact the future generation of the church and nothing will impact the lives of your children more than the idolatry that you personally allow. Everything about idolatry in the Old Testament was about the generation that's coming behind. And there are some of you who just heard that. And now we're going to move on to point number two. And I just want to stop here and be like, listen, like your kids' future worship is being written by the idols that you allow in your life. I'm not calling you to sacrifice as much as I am calling you to be a living sacrifice that's holy and pleasing to God and making much of him. Jesus over idols on the inside. Number two, community over self. Okay, what, what's up with the blood and the meat from strangled animals? Paul fleshes this out more in Corinthians, but this is not necessarily a rule and a restriction that's about do's and don'ts. This is about community. 
James is wise, and he knows Gentiles don't need to be running around eating all the foods that are forbidden to Jews and then existing as one community, just walking around like, hey, how's that miserable law going? Because we're over here eating pork and loving it, and the bacon's amazing. I know y'all can't have any, but, but Paul fleshes this out in Corinthians to be like, no, like, be mindful of who you are around. The priority as a believer is no longer that your freedom in Christ allows you to do all of these things. It's that your freedom in Christ enables you to become a bondservant to other people. So now my life doesn't exist for me, it exists for the good of the community and I choose to make my life more about them than I'm making it about myself. Do you know in Acts chapter 16, the very next chapter, Paul is going to circumcise Timothy, who's like his mentee in the faith? You're like, I thought you guys just decided that circumcision was unnecessary. They did. But Paul circumcises Timothy because he knows, hey, our ministry is bigger than our preferences. If we're going to minister to the Jews, he's going to have to be circumcised because they're not going to listen to him. And I got a future pastor right here and they got to respect him and they got to know him. So Timothy, sorry, bro, it's going to be painful. But, but, but like Paul is willing to make sacrifices for the good of the community, even though, even though he has every right not to, because his priority is no longer what do I want and what's easiest for me? The inner question for you is not, what do I have the freedom to do now that I'm forgiven by God? It's, oh, wow, I've been forgiven by God to serve other people. The main thing Jesus saves you from is not just the bad things that you've done. It's living a miserable life for yourself. And now it becomes about others more than it becomes about self. But once again, this is an inner choice of who's on the throne and who is this all about? So the food sacrificed to idols and from blood, that was way more motivated at, we've got to function together as one body. And they've got to be looking out for them, and they've got to be looking out for them. Simple question about this one. What area has your freedom in Christ allowed you to compromise that is actually causing other people to stumble? I don't know that for you personally. I could point out certain things. Y'all talk about that in small group. we got to get to point number three because I'm, I'm, I'm out of time. Number three. And this, oh, this is the biggest one. Purity over immorality. Purity over immorality. He says, you got to abstain from sexual immorality. That's the Greek word porneia. It's kind of this all-encompassing word that talks about sexual sin of any kind in your mind, in your heart, with your body, outside of the covenant of one man, one woman, for one lifetime in marriage. And so porneia is the word that we get pornography from in our day. And the reason why James brings up sexual immorality is he knows it was very, very possible and somewhat likely 2,000 years ago to be in the community of faith, to be a part of a body of believers, and be totally enslaved to sexual sin. And he's going, you've been made holy, you've been set apart, you have to participate in holiness being brought to fruition in your heart, mind, and body. And I know that was true for them 2,000 years ago, but I believe for us in 2023, this one stings the most. Because as I just told you how you've been purified and you've been given a new heart and a new mind and all these things that the blood of Jesus has given to you, the most common enslaving sin issue across the board in this room and in every room gathered right now that is causing you to believe lies and not believe that this heart has been given to you is sexual immorality. You're gathered with the saints, people of God to worship on a Sunday, 
But as I said the word saint, you just disqualified yourself because you know the Rolodex of sexual baggage that you carried into this room. In the early church, they knew if we're going to be holy and be set apart, you've got to live from the new identity that is yours in Christ Jesus. And you've got to start from a place that is already purified and growing in holiness, not making an effort to cancel out everything that you will never truly be able to make up for. Church family, look at me. I know we're compromised in this area. I know we're enslaved. I know it's hard in the culture we live in, and it did not get easier with social media and the iPhone. But when God says, I'll give you my Holy Spirit, there's a reason why that's his name. If you're here and you don't believe that you're holy, what does it mean to be holy? It means to be set apart by God, to be consecrated, to be unique. And sexual sin is the reason why holiness doesn't feel real to you. I want you to start from a space of identity. God calls you pure in the blood of Christ because of the blood of Jesus, not because of your agreement with the blood of Jesus. We have been purified by faith. Your participation is just to agree with God about what he's already spoken over you. And now, from that identity, we learn to live in growing in holiness over time. But if you don't, if you don't decide and agree with God on that identity, every single one of your efforts to be holy enough or good enough for God is going to feel like Israel in the Old Testament. You're just going to fluctuate on the roller coaster ride of your emotions. And how is that working out for you? But if you start from identity, now we start from a place that goes, this is who God says I am. And for every single one of us, the journey of being made holy in the image of Jesus is gonna look different. Some of us need varying levels of accountability. Some of us need five other sermons on this that I do not have time to give right now. Some of us need all kind of different counseling to go into our past and deal with stuff from family of origin. I'm not, I'm not up here to offer you all the things that need to be offered about sexual sin in point number three of a sermon. I'm just here to say we've been set apart by God and the invitation to holiness is not an invitation to misery. It's an invitation to love him more. When Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, I did not come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. He fleshed that out when he said, okay, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. I say, he who looks lustfully at a woman in his heart has already committed adultery with her. Why did Jesus do that? He didn't do that to go, oh, you thought the bar was here? It's going to go way up here. You better try harder. He did that to go, make no mistake about it. My kingdom brings a whole new level of being set apart. And I am here to not just raise the bar for what you're called to do. I'm here to raise the bar in your eyes for what you've been given. If the Holy Spirit has gone out to you, God, when he looks at you, doesn't see immorality the history of your internet browser, everything about every relationship that brought you this far. God looks at you right now and in the blood of Christ Jesus says, pure son, daughter, mine. Now believe it and grow in it in the context of community. Yeah, but what if I slip back? But what if I go back? I'm expecting that this journey is going to be hard and difficult and be the rest of your life. But if you persist in what? Trying to please God? No, in staying in love with Jesus, you're gonna be found blameless at the throne of Jesus. That's the journey, that's what we've been given. But perseverance looks like, can I stay in love and believing that holiness is mine? 
even when what I've come to offer doesn't look like that. We're going to have a time of consecration before the Lord right now. No, we're not going to take communion today. We'll get back to that uh, in two weeks when we come together for church. You can put your Bibles away. Band's going to come up here, and we're going to sing that simple line, God, purify my hands, purify my heart. You can stand up right where you are at all of our locations. As much as you can, please stay present in this room or whatever room you're gathered in. It is so distracting as people race to the parking lot to try to get out early. And to be real with you, that is just not the culture we're trying to build at this church. This is a moment for calling on God. Hey, if purified hearts leads me into a new life and the new creation, then God, that's what I want. So I want to pray for you. I want to ask, would you just open your hands if you're available to receive this from God? Heavenly Father, you're doing a work in this room. You're speaking to people from within. I pray that a freedom and a confidence in the work you have done because of your son would be going out to sons and daughters all over the state of Alabama and all over the world today. God, as a church family, we admit our hands are not clean. Our hearts have been hardened. And God, we need you to do a new work. And the new work we need you to do is not give us enough motivation for the week. The new work we need you to do is purify our hands and purify our hearts. God, we cry out like David did. If what it means to ascend to where you are is clean hands and a pure heart, God, I need you to create that in me. And I thank you that because of the cross, you already have. You already say yes. So God, we respond and we call on you for more. God, purify us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing together. Come on, purify my hands. Come on.